giant robots smashing into other giant robots. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Giant Robots Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast. I'm Ben, and I'm here with my co-host, Derek, and we're going to be talking about ThoughtBot and Drip. How's it going, Ben? It's going well. How you doing? I'm doing well. Good. So, um, I'm going camping this weekend. Are you? Yeah. Where at? Uh, there's this little park uh, near Boston that mm-hmm. I just discovered. Uh, it's in Andover, which is like 40 minutes north of Boston. Hmm. And uh, I'm going to go be in the woods for a little bit. Nice. Yeah. Is this for uh, like a retreat of sorts or is it just kind of... Um, uh, it's sort of actually a dry run. So I just bought a bunch of camping gear. Okay. Um, and by the way, if you are like the programmer type that likes optimizing things, mm-hmm. there's this really fun game of like how light can you get your pack and not mm. die. Yeah. Um, and so I've been like going down the like how close to like ultralight can I go and, you know, op- and like keep optimizing over time and all that. So I've been watching videos and reading things and, and going kind of nuts on this because it's a fun optimization problem. Yeah. What are you down to? Uh, I don't know actually what my, my pack weight's going to be yet. Okay. Uh, but I um, and basically I just I'm just getting geared up now. I'm going with a hammock, mm-hmm. um, hammock and a tarp and uh, what else? I bought a really light stove, a little transia alcohol stove. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what what the weights are going to be. I have to I'll figure that all out once everything arrives. Nice. But it's it's a really fun problem. Yeah. For, for, for my brain at least. Yeah. That's cool. Are you, have you been much of a camper historically, or is this new to you? Um, it's sort of new. I did a 10-day trip a couple of years ago mm-hmm. um, as part of an Outward Bound course that was like really mm-hmm. excellent uh, and decided that it was fun. And it, it this interesting thing happened when I was away from the internet for 10 days, mm-hmm. which was my brain calmed way down. Mm. Like I just love the way your mind shrinks, uh, or like the, the focus narrows, I guess. Yeah. When there are fewer interruptions and your only concerns are so basic. Yeah. It's like, I have to make sure I have food and shelter and that we get from this point to the next point on this day. And that's basically all I need to care about. Right. So you find you come back refreshed, re-energized? Oh, totally. Yeah. In a big way. Mm-hmm. It was interesting to see. It took, it took a good like six or seven days before like the impulse to like pull my phone out at random times went away. Yep. But it was so nice when it did. And I'd, yeah. I'd just be like, oh yeah, it's not there. And I would just kind of look around and be like, wow, the woods are pretty. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I always feel like it takes me a few days to pull my brain out of work. You know, and anytime mm-hmm. I'm going on vacation, I can't say I've done a, a long camping trip like that, but I could imagine that it would uh, uh, kind of force you out of it quickly with so much beautiful scenery and mm. um, just not having internet, right? Like you're basically off the grid. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So uh, it's, I'm only doing one night. This is basically, uh, this. so I'm going camping uh, later uh, next month. Mm-hmm. We're going to do a couple nights um, more isolated. So this is kind of like a, let me try out the new gear, Got get it. some practice setting up the various things in like a very easy environment. Yeah. Uh, so it'll, we'll, we'll see how it goes. Probably a smart iterative approach there. Yeah, exactly. To camping. This is, the, <laughs> this, is, this is the camping MVP. Yeah. Yeah. I have friends who are um, going, I think they're leaving today on a, uh, on a three day long camping ex- expedition. Mm-hmm. And um, I think they're going up to the, the North shore of Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, they were describing it to me uh, yesterday and it, it sounds pretty intense. I think they're traveling a total of 17 miles and much of that is like canoeing on mm. the lake. Oh, interesting. So it's kind of like a coordinated thing. They're going through a company that kind of plans out their yeah. itinerary, but they're pretty much alone out there. Um, hmm. interesting. So it'll be cool to hear their, their story. I know, uh, 
out here in Minnesota, a lot of uh, a lot of people in the city like to escape away around this time of year to uh, see the fall colors and mm-hmm. uh, totally see the lakes and stuff. So. Yeah, that's that's part of my motivation. New England has really nice leaves. Yeah, yeah. Today is the first time I've worn pants mm-hmm. in a while. It's definitely getting to that point where it's like, okay, yeah, fall is, is arriving. Mm-hmm. So, but I, I actually really like that. I, I enjoy fall a lot. So I'm yeah. Pumped. Yeah, it's been nice. I've been biking into work uh, every day and it's just the temperature is just starting to drop enough to where it's a little crisp in the morning. But, you know, you don't get all uh, hot and sweaty uh, riding mm-hmm. to riding in on the bike. So. That is so nice. Yeah. I want to recommend a book in case somebody wants to try this out. Mm. So the book that got me turned on to like, how can I like minimize the weight is this thing called Ultralight Backpacking Apostrophe Tips <laughs> <laughs> by Mike Cleland. Uh, and it's just like it's very it's a very charming book. Yeah. Um, it's almost like philosophical, like why it's a pleasant thing to do to try to get by with not very much gear. Mm-hmm. And I just, I really like the guy's attitude. Like it's, it's very charming. Yeah. Sounds like the right guy to be taking advice from on this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So if you're, if you're interested, even just read that. I think, I think even if you don't do it, it's a, it's a fun read and like has like good illustrations and it's, yeah, it's pleasant. Cool. So yeah, um, I have another story. I have a, sh- a story to share. Yeah. So um, this podcast has a Twitter account as of about a week ago. Ooh. So uh, Twitter, or just at Giant Robots, is this podcast. Until recently, we didn't have one. And Tom was like, oh, like we should get, the, we should get it some sort of Twitter handle so that... I forget what the reason was. Some, some reasonable thing to do. Um, and, and most you know entities have some sort of Twitter presence. And so I went and looked, and the Giant Robots handle was owned by someone. Mm-hmm. But he hadn't tweeted very much, and his last tweet was a few years ago. And so I just at messaged him and said, hey, would you mind if I use this for this podcast? It doesn't seem like you're using it. And his response was like, yeah, sure, absolutely. Like, how do I get it to you? Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. I've tried to do that a few times in the past for different handles, and always it's crickets. Mm. So I think it's basically like he left his like notifications on, I imagine, because mm-hmm. it was like it was almost right away. Um, so I kind of got lucky there, but that's actually the second time that's happened to me. I also got, I think it was Ben, like at Ben Orenstein, which I don't even use, but I wanted to have, uh-huh. <laughs> was the similar thing to say like, Hey, like, would you mind if I, if I had this, if I took this and the person was like, yeah, no problem. Wow. It's like such a nice moment where like, oh yeah, humanity, like people are, are cool. Yeah. Probably the closest story I have to that is like back, oh gosh, this was maybe like four years ago when, um, I was trying to pick a company name for the company I was going to launch my apps under. And, um, I came up with the name code tree mm-hmm. and the domain codetree.com was taken. And I just like did the who is record, looked it up, cold emailed the owner of the domain mm-hmm. and, uh, like, Hey, would you be interested in selling this to me? And like a day later, the guy responded, he's a software developer out of New York. And he's like, sure what are you thinking and then we like worked out a price i think it was like 700 dollars, which at the time was kind of a lot of money to me but but still worth it and uh that's awesome yeah so like i would always just expect that people will like either not respond or not be willing to talk to you so yeah totally it's always pleasantly surprising when they are definitely and by the way i actually originally intended to switch to at ben orenstein so i wasn't just like Mm. just trying didn't to keep, want accumulate to squat properties no yeah i was gonna change but then i was like there's so many things that are pointed at the old name and like i don't know i right. might just be stuck with it for a while right or forever yeah. where did your where did your existing one come from um i was really into chess when i was like 10 mm. or eight mm. or something and that's when like 
I first started interneting and needed to pick handles. And so I was Got like, it. I'll go with Rook. And it was taken. So I was like, I'll make them zeros because that was the cool thing to do back then. Yep. And then it's just been that for a long time. Yeah. And so I kind of want to like, like step, like get away from that just because, I don't know, it feels like juvenile or something to me, I guess, but because it, I was a juvenile when I created it, I guess. Sure. Um, but now it's kind of a thing that's like in a lot of places. So I don't know. Yeah, probably a surprising number of people just refer to you as Rook. Right, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. Those things kind of tend to stick. Yeah, so that might just be fine. Yeah. I had I had this grand plan to switch it at one point, but now it's like, eh, whatever. Yeah. Rebranding is hard. It, it is, totally. <laughs> Speaking of interesting things that happen in the world, GitHub projects. Yeah. How do you feel I about saw, all that? Do you see that? Yeah, I saw that. My mind was kind of blown. Mm-hmm. Um, they they, yeah, they shipped a ton of stuff. I, they did. I was poking around in the like looking at a pull request and all of a sudden I refresh the page and there's like start a code review I'm like what the mm-hmm. heck is this mm-hmm. yeah so looks like they've got a super MVP version of task boards going mm-hmm. now in github um, which does have some overlap with code tree so it'll be interesting to see where they take that I still think that a product like code tree which has like a ton of little enhancements to github issues for project management um, I think there's still a place in the world for apps like that because there's no way in my opinion, no way that GitHub's going to build all the tooling that you know a product team would need mm-hmm. for managing their project directly into the GitHub product. But um, yeah, it will be interesting to see over the coming uh, weeks and months how the existing integrators kind of hook into the functionality that GitHub's releasing. Totally. That have you have you looked at the GraphQL stuff at all? No. So I heard about this because I was paying attention to uh, David Nolan, who created ClojureScript. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was really intrigued by this idea. And he, so he gave this really interesting talk that I'll have to dig up because Tom won't be able to find it, I don't think, without help. But it, he, he basically noticed that Netflix and Facebook, whose architectures are very different, Facebook is very mono, apparently pretty like monolithic and Netflix is very service, service-y, mm-hmm. came up both sort of ran into the same problem and came up with a very similar solution, which is roughly have your clients specify the data they need uh, and send a query to the server and then have the server handle all that, like figure out what services need to be t- contacted and all that and right. get it all done in one request. Right. And they both, I, th- I guess, they, I think they both maybe started off with REST and both abandoned it and can't, went to that solution separately with different tools, but the same basic idea. Ah. And that basic idea is GraphQL, which is like you have, there's a query language and the clients build their own queries and then just send the query to the server and the, the results come back in the shape of that query with only the data you need interesting um, but with only one and, and only one request yeah makes a lot of sense sounds efficient uh yeah exactly i think that was kind of like one of the big motivations for it mm-hmm. sort of github's old api i think you were making a lot of different requests to different endpoints and like okay we'll get that you know you're gonna get all this data for about the user when all you really want is like you know the list of the repositories and then for you you know then make separate requests for each of those repositories that's going to send back more data that you don't need right um and this lets you be more fine-grained i guess Interesting. So GitHub released a GraphQL type API. Exactly. Yeah. So the, huh. the yeah, I think the that's like the, the going forward API now. Got it. And they're also interestingly, uh, GitHub.com is built using GraphQL as well. So they're dog fooding uh-huh. it directly. Okay. So there used to be this delay where like GitHub.com would get some stuff, and then it's like, when's this going to hit the API? We don't know. Right. And now it's like the API is is everyone sort of API first. Wow. Yeah. Sounds like they're really they're really moving on stuff these I days. I am super curious what happened. 
Yeah. Because something changed over there from my perspective. Mm-hmm. It feels like they were doing well, but the product was not changing that much. And then suddenly they started shipping stuff really aggressively. Right. And I'm really, I, I have, a, I, I know some people that work there. I want to like dig into this a little bit and maybe even bring somebody on the podcast. And because I, I feel like something got shaken up in a big way over there. And I want to know like who did it, what happened, what was this, what, what was the trick? Yeah. I know around the beginning of the year, there was the whole Dear GitHub letter, right? Which was like totally a whole band of major open source project maintainers basically coming together and writing this letter saying, GitHub, you're not listening to us. You're not shipping the features we need. Yep. And, you know, that was during that time I was deep into to code tree development. And so I was really watching uh, kind of the, the chatter in the community mm-hmm. and thought, you know, this is an opportunity for a product like code tree to really step in and kind of fill in the gaps where GitHub's not. And I still think that's true, but um, it is interesting that I think that letter had a huge impact mm-hmm. and I think that kind of lit a fire under them, mm-hmm. but it would be interesting to find out like what exactly happened on the inside. Totally. So like, yeah. So like what changed? Yeah. Like it may, it may be the case that that letter was like the bomb that went off inside GitHub and right. then like, what did they do? Right. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious to, to dig into that a little bit I'm gonna have yeah. to sort of tap my sources and see what I can find. Mm-hmm. That'd be interesting. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's been impressive the rate that suddenly they're they're getting stuff done yeah it feels like the old github Mm -hmm. like i remember when they were very small and hiring like the best ruby people left and right and shipping tons of stuff all the time oh yeah it feels like that slowed down and kind of stopped at a certain point right and there was this long like quiet period and now they're it feels like they're back to like github like roots yeah and i know inside it looks I'm pretty sure it looks way different than it used to back in those early days. I mean, they were they were famous for having the no management, very flat organizational structure. And I know now mm-hmm. they have managers. And I'm sure that ruffled feathers along the way of like, totally. you know, you have this large organization of, of employees who are not used to having managers. And now everybody has a manager. And I'm sure there was some some internal revolt against that. You know, mm-hmm. there has to be. So I wonder if it's just a matter of them kind of getting past you know, those growing pains and kind right. of finding their groove. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there would be some interesting lessons to, to pull out of like how they've managed to, to start shipping again with, with so many employees. Totally. Yeah. I'm curious. Like management has its problems, but it also gives you some leadership, mm-hmm. right? So if no one's in charge, then no one can say like, we're not doing these 10 things. We are going to do these three things aggressively. Right. And so I wonder if that was like, my guess is that some of that was behind the increased output. Yeah. No, it seems like it would have to be. Mm -hmm. And I'm always, that's like my biggest fear as we like grow our team at drip even Mm -hmm. is like, how are we going to make sure that we don't get in a position where we're not able to ship at the same rate that we are right now, you know, Um, because theoretically you should be able to, you add more bodies and each person should be able to have a certain amount of output. But as soon as you start growing teams, building teams, there's all these transferring information becomes slightly less efficient and, you know, how do you keep people motivated? And there's all those people issues that start, start arising. Totally. I think it's a really hard problem. Yeah. I like the constraints of like, well, okay, keep it really small. And like, you can kind of do less concurrently, mm-hmm. but the overhead that you pay, the overhead penalty is lower. Right. Exactly. And that's a tough balancing act. There's a really good blog post um, by the, one of the co-founders of Heroku about uh, how, what do you do as your development team grows? Like how many mm-hmm. pieces do you split it into? How do you coordinate them? And it's like all the way from, I think like three people to a couple hundred. Mm. So we can throw a link in there and you might even want to read it. I'd be super interested to read that. It's, yeah. it's really good. Yeah. Recommended. 
I got one more like major item from the week, yeah. I guess. Oh, also, sure. I did I did not I, I sort of only kind of hit my uh, accountability goal that I set with you, which was to notify <laughs> okay. everybody about the hound stuff. Okay. Um. So I we were very close. So I actually notified about fifty people. Okay. We decided we kind of kept as the as the moment drew near. I think we all got a little bit like, is it too high? Is this okay? What if, what if people freak out? And we all got like a little bit scared. And so right. um, we compromised and said, let's send it to fifty people and just see what the response is. And that was only um, last evening, yesterday evening. Okay. So I've only gotten two responses back, and one was like, one person. So I, I mentioned, I said, uh, we're going to grandfather you for a certain period of time, and as thanks for being a customer, we're going to give you a permanent discount. Got it. And so one person responded and said, well, when Intercom changed their prices, they grandfathered us in at a, a rate that was hundreds of dollars less than the normal price. What do you think of that? And I responded, I was like, well, I hear where you're coming from, but Intercom has raised $100 million of venture capital. (laughs) And so, like, they don't really need your couple hundred dollars that much. Right. So, like, part of the reason we're doing this is because we want to be able to, like, put more development resources into Hound. And if we just grandfather everyone, that doesn't achieve the, the main goal of this. Right. And he hasn't responded. I don't know. Maybe he'll consider me sort of a snarky pain in the ass, like most people, but... Mm. Um, and then the other person w- immediately responded like after I sent this email I got a, a response back like within like three minutes which is like that's great we're super glad to hear that you're going to work on Hound more Th- cool. that was it. it was like this is great news was the response it was like yeah. this is great news that the prices are going up they're like they didn't even care about the prices at all all they cared about was like you're going to spend more time on the product yeah which is like wonderful to hear which I think that's probably what your best customers who are likely to stick around for a long time right. that's probably their sentiment you know yeah. but i guess a sample size of two is not you yeah. know, not enough to go off of but my, my hope is you're right yeah and so i mean give, given that result i think i'm just my i think i'm gonna push for sending the rest today at the mm-hmm. current numbers that we've that we have on there because there doesn't seem to be like a mass revolt right but we'll see as the responses rolling today but i'd like to get that sent out like you know within the next couple hours yeah so cool. it's, it's close it's close partial credit i would give myself okay all right and then uh, one of the last like news item bullet thing for me was I, I released this thing that I kind of did, which is a couple of years ago, I started to write a book about uh, giving talks, okay. good conference talks, and I called it Speaking for Hackers. And it turns out that I didn't end up writing a book, but I wrote maybe like half a book, a third of a book okay. um, in, a, in a GitHub repo, and uh, it never went anywhere. And so I recently just decided to open it up and just let anyone that wants to read it. Nice. Uh, so uh, we can throw a link to that. But if you're going to give any talks, uh, I have it's like a five thousand words or something on giving talks and preparing talks and submitting them for conferences and getting selected and what to do afterwards and just a bunch of random advice on that topic. Cool. I think that's I think that's something that a lot more people need to be doing. And I think like kind of like we talked about early on in in me joining you on this podcast, like developer types tend to be averse to public speaking, putting mm. themselves out there. Mm-hmm. So. I would be super interested to read that. Cool. Yeah. Well, feel free. I, it's it was mostly I wrote a lot of it in bad talks. Mm-hmm. So I would like be watching someone give a talk because I, I was there was a period where I was going to a ton of conferences uh, a few years ago, like three or four years ago. I was really into the conference circuit, and so I watched a lot of talks. And I would be in a talk and be like, "Oh, you should never do what that person just did." And mm-hmm. so I'd like just start writing about why. And uh, pretty soon I was like, I have all these notes and like, this is kind of like a book. And so I sort of made, I was like, maybe it is a book. Yeah. So there's a lot of real world ideas in there. This is not like theoretical. This is like me watching lots of talks and also giving lots of talks and seeing what worked. Right. So I think there's some, some solid advice in there. 
Curious. So, so you were thinking of releasing this as like a book that you sell? Yeah. In fact, I actually did sell. I started selling access to the repo, like early access kind of thing, before I had okay. almost anything. So I think I sold, I don't know, a few hundred dollars, like $500 worth of people into this book. Okay. And then, you know, worked on it kind of here and there, but then never like got it over the finish line or even really that, that close to the finish line. And sure. so... I just eventually, this was like, this has been years now. And so I was like, okay, this is never going to be a paid product, I think. And so like, why don't I just get this out in the world? Got it. So it was kind of like, instead of putting the final like polish on it to the point where you'd feel comfortable selling it as a product, just kind of open it up uh, for free. Yeah, I think so. I mean, like there's part of me, which is like, oh, but like, what if I do want to sell this? And like, I could always do that. I could, I guess like, you know, close the repo down or something. I don't know. Like, I think honestly, I could charge money in good conscience for it in almost in its current form Mm -hmm. i would just be like this is a tiny book on giving good talks right and actually i kind of like that like genre or that that idea of a genre which is like most people i think when they go to write a ebook or something they're like oh it should be about 100 pages or whatever and it's like that's great but some people will never read that like wouldn't it be better if it was short short enough that people actually read the whole thing right as opposed to like sat in some random folder in dropbox forever yeah that's a good subtitle a tiny book on giving good talks Mm. (laughs) So I who, like it. Uh, thanks. So who knows? Maybe I, I I will want. It's it got some like good. I just tweeted one link out to it, and you know, got 130 stars or something on GitHub. And now, nice. And some people are saying oh, this is great. Thank you so much. And so maybe that will motivate me to one day package it up and and do that. Yeah. Or not. I don't know. It was just nice to get it out into the world. Cool. Congrats on shipping. Oh, thank you. It's, yeah. a, good, it's a good feeling. Yeah. I put on my my captain hat. Totally. So those are the major things for me. I have like a question we can f- come back to if, if we want, which is kind of like a product management question. But uh, I feel like I've been talking a lot, so maybe you should say some things. Sure. Yeah, so we've been... Um, it's been a kind of a busy week for Drip. We've been shipping some stuff lately. Mm-hmm. Um, so we talked about uh, the f- new forum design that was kind of spiraling into a, a big, long project um, that I've been working on for the past few weeks. Mm-hmm. And we got that shipped uh, nice. last week. So it was kind of, one, it's one of those things where we wanted to be really careful not to not to break existing forms, first and foremost. Mm-hmm. Like, if the new form design has some bugs, I think that's understandable. You know, it's a brand new thing. But along with shipping that, we had to refactor a bunch of the internals of the code that renders forms. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we, we debated, like, how much of a gradual rollout should we do for this? We don't want to be, you know, too flippant with just, like, clicking the deploy button on it. Mm-hmm. And so we kind of arrived at a strategy of gradually, like, regenerating the new JavaScript file that will present the new form design and upload that for individual users. And we mm. starting starting with some of like the, the drip inner circle um, mm-hmm. and just testing it out and like testing out in a bunch of browsers, seeing if anything breaks with that and then doing another one and another one. And inner circle of, are like your power users that have signed yeah. up for like beta stuff. Right. Okay. Yeah. The ones who would, the, the friendly customers, the yep. ones who, who uh, wouldn't be too upset if we accidentally broke a form for five minutes or something. Sure. And so we did that in just a very carefully supervised manner and nothing appeared to break. So then we deployed it and knock on wood, we haven't really heard any bug reports. So nice. Yeah. So happy about that one. That's awesome to change like an important and highly trafficked feature and not have anything break. That's great. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that one felt really good. And then along with the same uh, theme of, of large deployments that could potentially break things, uh, we, <laughs> over the weekend, finally rolled out our new server. So it's the, we used to use Puppet to, to uh, kind of 
manage the configuration of all our servers. Mm-hmm. And um, our Puppet scripts were kind of thrown together over the years by different developers, none of whom were uh, you know, Puppet experts. So things kind of got a little bit messy. Mm-hmm. And um, we really wanted to get our server configuration story you know, locked down really tight so that we could just click one button and spin up a whole new cluster of servers, uh, whether for like testing purposes, staging purposes, or just, you know, in disaster recovery scenarios. Yep. So our DBA, who manages all of our Postgres um, stuff, is also an Ansible consultant. Oh, nice. And so we had him working on um, an Ansible configuration. And I think he actually started working on it about a year ago, which just Whoa. <laughs> kind of goes to show how long these these things can go on. You know, it was just like never a never a good time to say, all right, let's let's change all the configuration of our servers and hopefully not break anything, you know. Yeah. And so we spent uh, quite a bit of time testing it out. We had a staging setup running for the last few months where we could deploy code to and test out features as as we developed new ones. And so we, we were pretty confident that nothing was going to break. You know, we we gave it a lot of a lot of hours of testing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the time came last weekend to finally finally flip the switch and um, start you know cycling in new servers that are managed by Ansible and gradually phasing out the the old servers and. It took much longer than I would have liked. We spent probably six-ish hours on Saturday, just kind of mm. being pretty methodical, you know, starting with front-end servers and then moving to job servers and all the other different roles. And uh, as with many things like this, it just takes longer than you expect. But mm-hmm. but it feels good to have it live and and also no no known issues as a result of that. So. I'm feeling pretty good about some of these big deployments recently. That's cool. Two for two. Yeah. Yeah. That's excellent. Hmm. So I saw a thing that I wondered if it would uh, affect you guys about the, that I imagine you saw this as well. Uh, Google beginning to eventually penalize sites that have some sort of popover over the content. Mm, And I know that like drip, I know that you have an option for the widget to do that, like pop over the whole page if you want, like Lightbox style. Yeah. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, so there was some internal discussion I saw in within Lead Pages as well because Lead Pages has their their Lead Box product, mm-hmm. um, which is basically a, a light box opt in form, mm-hmm. and I think the general thinking, uh, at least from the discussions I saw, were that you know it may have an impact, like we don't know yet, mm-hmm. but I think Google is probably being pretty smart about the types of pop ups that are really annoying versus the ones that are you know a little bit less obstructive. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there are like within drip, we offer settings that say like, you can, you can choose not to have your light box pop up on mobile at all. Mm-hmm. And so that's, you know, that may become the recommended setting. I think that's our default setting right now. Mm. And that might become the recommended based on the data. Mm-hmm. And we also have some settings in place so that it won't actually cover the whole screen, but it'll just like kind of show a little tab at the bottom that you can click if you want to see the form. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. So I think things like that, hopefully Google will be able to tell the difference that you're not actually obstructing the entire view. Um, mm-hmm. But I guess we'll just have to wait and see. Yeah. Well, I'm, I, I, I'm not shocked to hear that you have your eyes on it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's one of those things where like Google's such a, a black box. Like mm. it's really difficult to get out ahead of those types of problems. You just kind of have to wait for the data to come in and, and then adjust from there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm not shocked to see them making a change like this because honestly, I have like on page call to action fatigue mm-hmm. of that nature. Like, it seems like there was a period where 
everyone sort of realized like, hey, like you should try to capture an email from your visitors as like a is like a pretty good idea. Right. Um, and so like it's always worth <laughs> if you're just looking at like ROI, it kind of seems like it's always immediately worth being more aggressive with that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like in the short term, that always seems correct. In the long term, it probably hurts your brand. It annoys people. Some people might just like immediately bail as people get more annoyed by it. They, you know, might avoid your site or something. And so it feels like there's like a kind of a, a difficult tension there. Yeah, we've we've always for our own marketing site, we've always erred on the side of trying to be not super annoying, which is kind of where the it's where the concept for the drip widget originated. Like, yeah. I think around the time we did that, it was becoming really popular to do like full screen light boxes, like cover the entire site. Right. Or like almost redirect you to a completely different page seconds after looking at your content and stuff like that is like. I hate that as a, right. as a as a consumer of the internet, you know. Mm-hmm. So that's where kind of the idea for the drip widget. I think drip was one of the first ones to do this, which is just like a little tab in the corner that slides up and, you know, doesn't cover all your content. You can easily hide it if you don't want to see it and we remember when when you've closed it so we don't auto pop up again and just, you know, stuff like that just to you probably are like losing some some opt-ins, but I think there's definitely a balance there to play like maybe you'll get more opt-ins with a more aggressive pop-up but you'll be angering your users at the same time so yeah it's worth being a good citizen of the internet yeah totally yeah there's some complicated game theory ideas in there i think Mm -hmm. it's like if everyone does the most aggressive thing then i don't know i'm glad that the revolt has started (laughs) yeah against the worst of it yeah because i was i was already feeling that pain myself yep i had a, a thought uh while you were talking uh, a moment ago about uh, infrastructure and whatnot. Do you get a lot of exceptions? Um, like, what's your policy on that? Like, do you ex- is some like low level of exceptions acceptable? Are you totally rigorous about destroying them? What What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, so we we use Honey Badger for all of our exception monitoring, yep. and we have gone through periods of time where we would like see a standard set of exceptions coming in uh, every day that mm-hmm. were like non critical mm-hmm. and. You know, it's things like some random browser in some other native default language was like sending in weird Unicode. Mm. Like that would trigger an exception, but it wasn't really anything that was our fault and nothing was really breaking as a result of it, but it was just noise. Mm -hmm. Um, And nowadays we try to stay on top of the noise as much as possible because we found that, you know, the more of those noisy exceptions are coming in, the more likely it is to miss a really important one. Totally. I'm even at times have been tempted to set up like complicated filters on my Gmail inbox to mm-hmm. like try to filter out certain Honey Badger exceptions. And it's like, wait a second, we should just fix this problem. We should either rescue the exception and not send it or just yep. silence it, you know, at the Honey Badger level or something like that. Yep. So I would say um, we didn't used to be super aggressive about that and we've gotten more over time like mm-hmm. more deliberate about trying to keep our exception volume low mm-hmm. that seems like a reasonable policy yeah i remember someone a friend of mine at github telling me that, that they're like pretty rigorous about that as well yeah and, like a huge app lots of people but mm-hmm. still it's like just let's go after these exceptions like pretty aggressively because like you said it can mask real problems pretty easily if you get used to like a background noise of it being okay yeah and like certain other types of exceptions like a query timeout we've started to instead of letting that fall back to exception monitoring it's like one we should be rescuing those so that the ui doesn't just totally crash Mm. and two we should be piping those to a log file where we can keep tabs on what's timing out instead of it you know going to you know pinging everybody's phone every time one happens Mm -hmm. so that's another approach we've taken is like trying to redirect some things like that towards a log file instead 
Makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, any other big things for you? I have a, a product management topic, but we're getting close up to our, our imagined time limit. And okay. so I think maybe we'll, like I'll just kick that to next week. This okay. was sort of like a news item week, and I think maybe next week we'll do a little bit like product manage kind of thing, potentially. Sure. Yeah. Uh, it was lovely chatting to you, as always. Yeah. Uh, same time next week? Yep. Let's <laughs> do it. All right, cool. Today's show was produced and edited by Tom, my arms are long, Obarski. If you'd like to access the show notes for this episode, you can go to giantrobots.fm slash 210. Thanks for listening. 